no matter where you find yourself tonight, no matter what you believe, no matter what you've done, I want you to feel welcome here. RUF um, is one of the many campus ministries at Wofford trying to walk alongside you in your faith during these formative years in college and uh, where people fundamentally bound by the reality that God loves us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we tell over and over and over again this simple old gospel story that Jesus went up on a cross and walked up out of a tomb for you and for me. And as we retell over and over this gospel story, we have to love God in gratitude. We have to love our neighbors. We have to serve Wofford College. That's what we're trying to do. That's why we sing. That's why we pray. That's why we look at God's word. And what we've been doing this semester, we've been looking at the Psalms of Ascent. We've been calling this time, this semester, called Songs for the Road. And so the image of the Christian life that I've wanted on your minds and on your hearts is not the Christian life as a quick errand, but a long road trip, this hiking trip journey with Jesus, a pilgrimage, a journey. It's a lifelong process. It's not overnight. And tonight we're going to be looking at Psalm 130 and Isaiah 55. And I'll unpack why we're looking at Isaiah as well later. But as I've been thinking of this image this semester of the road trip, the the journey with Jesus, one thing that's crucial um, I've come to know as I go home for the holidays, as I go to Greenville to meet friends and come back, I need to go to the gas station and get fuel. Fuel is vital for any kind of journey. It just is. And many of you will travel home this this weekend. And you'll visit your friends and your family. And you'll probably go to the gas station and you'll get your snacks. And you'll gear up. And you'll get peanut M&Ms. And you'll get Sour Patch Kids. And you'll also get fuel in your gas tank. And then you'll go. You'll be ready. I've never been backpacking. Ivy grew up backpacking with her family. And apparently... Packing is extremely important while they're backpacking. It just is. And you got to have food. You have to have fuel. And in long distance running, um, the little time that I have done that, you got to have these. Have you ever seen this? Runners, y'all know these, these little like gels. I didn't know that such things existed or that they were important, but they are important if you're going to run, um, especially over 10 miles with any kind of consistency. Fuel for any kind of journey where there's longevity, it's not quick, it's not an errand, it's not overnight. Fuel is vital. And as we've seen, following Jesus in the life of faith on this journey is complicated. We've talked about life in a fallen world is messy and it's bumpy, and we're just not going to pretend like it's not in RUF. You run out of gas, you lose steam, we need fuel to carry on. So here's the question we're going to talk about tonight. What is the fuel for the Christian life? What is the fuel for the journey of faith? That's what we're going to look to for Psalm 130 and also Isaiah 55. And here's what we're going to see. Very simple. The fuel for the Christian life is grace. The fuel for the Christian life is grace. And we're going to see this in a couple ways. And the first is this. The grace of forgiveness The grace of forgiveness. And then the second thing we're going to see is the grace of food. The grace of food. So let's do the first one, the grace of forgiveness. So grace is sufficient. It's the only sufficient fuel for the long haul following Jesus. Again, it's bumpy. It's messy. Traveling conditions following Jesus 
are tumultuous. They just are. And again, we don't need to pretend like they're not. But perhaps the messiest part about following Jesus when it gets the bumpiest is when we are overcome and exposed in our sin. Not the circumstantial conditions of like our lives and what's going on outside of ourselves, but the sinfulness of our heart. If you see Psalm 130, if you have the text in front of you, this guy who wrote the psalm and singing this psalm is overwhelmed by his sin. He is overwhelmed by it. His words come from a place of urgency. He's owning the fact that his sins are innumerable. I can't count them, and if I could, no one could stand. Not me and not you. He is in the depths, and he is in utter desperation. And that's why we sang those song, that psalm from the depths of woe, from the depths of desperation. One translation says this about verses 1 and 2. This is his paraphrase. Help God, the bottom has fallen out of my life. Hear the urgency. Master, hear my cry for help. Listen, open your ears. Listen to my cries for mercy. There's urgency and desperation because his sin is before him. Not the world's sin, not his circumstances of suffering, but his sin that he sees in his own life and heart. The psalmist is a lot like my daughter Annie in this way, in that when Annie wants our attention, she makes it abundantly clear. She is in a hurry when it comes to getting our attention. There's urgency there. She's not playing games when she's trying to get our attention. The psalmist is not playing games. He's trying to get God's attention because he's stuck. The psalmist is stuck. Maybe you feel stuck tonight. I don't know if you do. Oftentimes we do at the end of a semester where we have these lofty goals intellectually and physically and spiritually, and we got tripped up in certain ways, and we just have not been able to figure out how to get around that corner and how to recover from that wound. Do you feel stuck? Have you felt stuck? Me too, and you're not alone. David and the psalmist you're in good company, but also with me, I I noticed the older that I get, um, I always thought that people pleasing was the one kind of approval of man kind of sin in my life. That was the one that would trip me up the most as I get older and get into my thirties. And it, that's still as much as I care about what y'all think of this sermon, people pleasing stuff is going on like right now. And here's, what's been more difficult. Anger. Anger in my life. I've shared this with some of y'all. Because with anger, there's an experience of feeling more stuck and I don't have the tools in and of myself to tackle the anger, to manage the anger. It's mostly internal and so it feels out of control. It's not explosive or there's no, there's nothing outward going on with it necessarily with my words or my actions, but internally, absolutely churning in an out of control way if I don't keep tabs on it. The psalmist feels stuck. And the beauty of Psalm 30 is the honesty of looking at his sin in the face but, and owning it. But then what does he do with his sin? What does he do with his sin? He throws his sin on God and he's asking for mercy like a vulnerable child with urgency, with desperation. He is saying, when it comes to sin in my life, I'm overwhelmed. I don't stand a chance. I can't survive. I can't deal with it all. I won't last. 
And so he lifts his eyes from his sin and his eyes go to his God. With you, there's forgiveness. And he lifts off how abundantly gracious God is. Lots of repeated words. Y'all know in the psalmist love to repeat words and phrases to get our attention. And the the repeated refrain in this is God's graciousness, his steadfast love, his forgiveness, the grace of his forgiveness. One author says this, as it turns out, forgiveness is your habit. He's paraphrasing the psalmist. With you, there's forgiveness. Forgiveness is your habit. Steadfast love and forgiveness and the grace of his forgiveness is just who God is. That's who you are dealing with when you look honestly, honestly in your own life, and your own heart, and you give your sin to Jesus. You can expect one thing, mercy and grace and forgiveness. So if you muster up the courage to actually do that, to own your sin, to look at it in the face, not act like you're perfect, and you take it to Jesus, that's what you'll get over and over again because it's not occasional mercy. It's not occasional grace. It's new mercy every single morning that has no limits to it. One of my favorite movies is this movie called Calvary from 2014, and it's a a movie about an Irish priest named Father James. Let me tell you about Father James. Father James lived a quiet shepherding life of shepherding the people in this rural town in a tiny parish uh, in Ireland. But turns out, before he entered into the Roman Catholic priesthood, he was an alcoholic and he also was married and now he's a widow. And he also had a daughter with his wife who passed away and the daughter is Fiona. Fiona is in her early 30s, and she's a drug addict, and she's attempted suicide several times, and she's visiting her dad in this beautiful Irish landscape. And one of the most beautiful parts of the movie is Father James' relationship with his daughter and how vulnerable she is and how much suffering he's been through and the grace that he extends to her. And here's an exchange that Father James and Fiona have And this is after Fiona opens up to her dad about attempting suicide. She has scars all over her arms in the movie. Fiona says this, Father, you tell me that it would have been a mortal sin, I suppose, if I were to tell you, but would I have suffered eternal damnation, Father? Her dad responds, God is great. The limits of his mercy have not been set. The limits of his mercy have not been set. Without mercy and grace, he knows she does not stand a chance. The rehab and the rules and the New Year's resolutions were not working for Fiona. She needs mercy and grace. She won't make it, neither will you, And neither will I. The grace of forgiveness has no limits. And so rules and law and guilt and shame might work as fuel for you for a while. Maybe for a whole season. But you will run dry. It will not last. It's not sufficient fuel for the long haul. Guilt and shame and theology exams and law will not last for the long haul. This is one of the things about obedience in the Christian life, becoming more like Jesus, always has to be motivated by gratitude, not by guilt. Because gratitude and the grace of His forgiveness will put wind in your sails. 
guilt and law, you will burn out. That's why we take that seriously. The centrality of grace to be your fuel in the Christian life. Because your sins will be exposed and only the grace of his forgiveness. That wasn't just like when you accepted Jesus into your heart at that camp that one time, but like daily bread and mercy for all of your sins, past, present, and future. And the Psalms love to talk about how forgiving God is. It's not just Psalm 130. As far as the east is from the west, so God has dealt with your sin. And if it's on Jesus, and it was, then it's not on you anymore. That's what we're going to celebrate in a couple of days on Good Friday. That's the grace of forgiveness. Let's do the grace of food now. The grace of food. <clears throat> Shifting gears to Isaiah. And let me name this on the front end. I have been thinking a lot about food uh, over uh, this semester. My wife, Ivy, gave me a charcoal smoker grill, and it's been so fun to experiment. Ivy... Uh, makes sourdough bread from a sourdough bread starter that's like four generations in her family. Food is serious to us. It just is. So we think about it a lot. We have an intern who can bake up a storm, and y'all know that if y'all have had any of her baked goods. You never turn down Caroline's chocolate chip cookies. So food's on our minds. I want to talk about food for this reason. As we think about food and meals, and as Isaiah 55 invites us to do so, that our our eyes and our minds might be opened to the centrality of food to be a grace for us for the long haul, that we might have our eyes open to our physical hungers that point to our spiritual hungers. That's what we're going to do with the grace of food. Frederick Buechner, a pastor, once said it this way. He's talking about bread. This is his definition for bread. Man does not live by bread alone, but he doesn't live long without it. To eat is to acknowledge our dependence both on food and on one another. It also reminds us of other kinds of emptiness that not even the blue plate special can touch. Not even like cookout milkshakes can touch or TNT wings, believe it or not. Um, The world is hungry. You are hungry. I'm hungry. We're hungry people. And again, our physical hunger points to greater, deeper, spiritual and existential hungers that we have. And the prophet Isaiah gets at this. He knew this. Come, everyone who thirsts, come, buy and eat. Jesus knew this too. If you read the Gospels, you'll see what Jesus was in the business of doing, revealing himself by eating meals with people. Feeding the 5,000 with fish and bread, turning water into wine at a wedding, cooking breakfast for his friends on the beach after he rose from the grave. Jesus loves food. He said he is the bread of life, that he is the living water. Luke one twenty or one fifty three says this, he has filled the hungry with good things. He has filled the hungry with good things. Have you ever thought about how central food is to your day and to our lives? I want you to think about this. Like, we just don't think about this stuff. How central food is to our lives. Every single day, literally every hour, and basically every culture is oriented around three meals. It just is. Your calendar, as much as you love people and you're trying to check off all these boxes, they're oriented around food. It just is. Even on days when you're 
trying to just survive the day and you're eating kind of on the go, it's on your mind. Food operates or orients us in the way that we orient our own schedules and our times. Because the moment when we enter into the world, we're hungry. And we let our parents know. And on our deathbeds, we will be hungry. And we will run out of food. Food is central to our life. Where was the last, mem- like, the last memorable meal that you had? Where was that? I want you to think about that for a second. Where was the last memorable meal that you had? Was it home? Was it at your dinner table, your kitchen table at home? Maybe you went to a James Beard award-winning restaurant in Greenville or Charleston. Maybe it was after fly fishing all day and you went to a burger place and you were so satisfied by that meal. Maybe it was just like a whole summer and you haven't had cookout and you get in Spartanburg and that's the first place you go. Where, where it was the last memorable meal on your mind? Who was around the table? Who did you eat with? Who served the meal? Who cooked the meal? Food fills our bellies and our hearts. And I'm asking you to imagine your ideal meal, or at least the one that you remembered most recently, to highlight a couple of features about meals. That if we understand this, the features and unpack them, we'll understand our host, who is Jesus Christ. So I want to talk about two features of meals that really led us into Jesus' heart who longs to feed us. First, every meal has a host. Every meal, there's a host. When someone invites you over to their house for a meal, the host has singled you out. He has singled you out. She has singled you out. You are invited. You have a place in their home and at their table. This is what hospitality is. You invite someone and you have said with the invitation, you say with the labor and the food, and when you serve them drinks, and when you serve them food. I want to be with you. You belong here. I see you. I know you. You are worth my time. An invitation from a friend to grab dinner. An invitation is to be received and welcomed and loved. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Do you hear the grace of the invitation from our Lord? Who has no money, come by and eat. Come by wine and milk without money, without price. It's not a meal that you earn. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? One translation says, why do you spend all your money on cotton candy? And your labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligent to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in riches of food. Jesus is the host. Jesus is the host of our meals. He has invited you to receive daily bread from him. When we ask Jesus, how should we pray, Jesus? How can we pray in a way that would be pleasing to you? One of the first lines, give us this day our daily bread. And that's not just like spiritual bread. That's like breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and maybe some snacks in between. We need daily bread. And so Jesus delights He has singled you out to feed you with real food, real food. So at Chick-fil-A, next time you're at Chick-fil-A, Jesus is the host. Jesus is the host. The next time you're at cookout, maybe you're going after this. Probably not. You're going to go study. But if you were to go to cookout, Jesus 
is the host. This weekend, the resurrected Jesus will be the host at the meal you have with your family and your friends if you're going home. Real food, real fuel, real grace, real bread, you are invited. He is the host. So every meal has a host, and it's Jesus. He longs to give us daily bread. And second, every meal has a sacrifice. Every meal has a sacrifice. Meals just don't, that they're not just a host, but the host is at work. He's been at work. She has been at work. It always involves sacrifice. When you consider Jesus and the meals that he hosts, hospitality and sacrifice are always features for him. Always. When you invite someone into your home, and you long for them to feel welcome, to create an environment that says, you belong here, make yourself at home. But in order to achieve and create the hospitality environment that you want to be welcoming, these conditions that are safe, sacrifice is involved from the host. They have to get to work. There's work to do. The, the host must do all kinds of things. They've got to sacrifice time, energy, resources to make it all work right. When you sit down at someone's table and look at the mashed potatoes and the broccoli and you get a second serving of chili or cherry pie or whatever it is, there is work that went in to make that possible. You are literally eating sacrifice and grace of the host. The chopping of the onions, the careful measuring of herbs and spices that you didn't see, the buying of the flowers at the florist to put on the table, making sure there was enough decaf coffee and enough tea for you to eat afterwards because they don't want you to be in a rush. There's sacrifice involved. Friends, do I even have to remind you that sacrifice is essential for the supper of Jesus? When Jesus took the bread and he broke it, he told them the only way that you can experience the welcoming love and forgiveness and grace of Jesus Christ is if you come to me and you admit that you're weary because of all that I've done behind the scenes on public display for everybody to see dying like an animal for you that you might be welcomed and at home with me. Friends, that is the Lord's Supper. Y'all go take the Lord's Supper ASAP. Side note, go take the Lord's Supper ASAP at a church. In his book, um, Cooked, there's also a Netflix documentary that's so good. Um, Journalist and UC Berkeley professor Michael Pollan says it this way about meals and sacrifice and hospitality. He just says it very simply. Is there any practice culturally less selfish any labor less alienated, any time less wasted than preparing something delicious and nourishing for the people you love. We could just substitute Jesus and somehow insert him into that sentence and we have the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Sacrifice done to bring us home and say, I want you at my table because of all that I've done. The thing about the host, too, if you think about the parable of the prodigal son, you've got two different kinds of boys, right? Prodigal and, and Pharisee. 
Pharisee wants to dot all the I's, cross all the T's. Prodigal wants none of that. He's got no time for it. He goes, goes off to the far country. He wants freedom on his own terms. And the, the dad really is the host in the story. What is he the host of? He's the host of a party that he ends up throwing. And he's not just throwing it for his long-lost son coming home from the far country. He wants both of his boys there. And if you read the story, he runs out, seeing his son out of the distance, he runs out, which men in the first century were not going to run in public. He was literally sacrificing his reputation and status to like run to his boy. He does that, and he's saying, I want you at my table. And then, crossing his arms... And cynicism, the older son is outside. He's like, why are you doing this barbecue for him? And what does the dad do? He singles him out and he leaves the party. He's like, what are you doing? Everything that I have is yours. Come and eat. The barbecue is inside. It's not just for him. It's for you. My point is this. The host, Jesus Christ, doesn't have to have you there. He delights and wants you there. He wants you there. He wants to feed you. So the, the, the transforming power of, of meals and food is also seen in another movie, one of my favorites, and it's from 1987. It's called Babette's Feast. Babette's Feast. And this movie takes place in the 19th century in a tiny Danish village on the coast. And the village is secluded. It's a small church community. They live there on their own. There's a parish minister. She, he has two daughters along with this eclectic, quirky, difficult mix of characters, old and young, and the community is strict, and the community is very legalistic. And the minister eventually dies, and his two daughters are now middle-aged. And the entire community is so grieved, and they become bitter towards one another, they don't have a pastor to rein them in, and they're so plagued by grieving the, uh, the passing, that the daughters are like, we've got to do something about this. We cannot handle these crazies because they're sad and they're angry, angry and they're joyless. And then out of the blue, this young French woman named Babette shows up at their door. And Babette is showing up alone after her husband and children are killed in the French Civil War. And she's asking for shelter in this little parish. And she asked the minister's two daughters, look, Please welcome me. I'll be your cook. I'll do any manual labor that you want. And so they invite her and say, fine, you can be our cook. And something happens and changes Babette's life. She wins the French lottery. She wins the French lottery. She's so poor and she wins this. And the two sisters, because they're all poor, they're expecting Babette to use the money to create a new life for herself. Like, go, go. Like, create this new life. Why would you want to stay? And so much of the movie is Babette surprising them with a meal. She ends up using the lottery money that she won to to cook a homemade French dinner for the village. The entire village comes to celebrate the anniversary of the minister's passing. And Babette, it's very elaborate. She spends days traveling to France to acquire all the ingredients for the elaborate feast. Much of the movie consists of Babette in the kitchen after getting all the ingredients from her homeland, and she's preparing the meal. There's pots, and there's pans, and there's all the smells, and she's ordering all the sous chefs around with great care and with great grace. 
with all kinds of sacrificial work going on behind the scenes. But the real magic of the movie takes place when the village and all the parishioners sit down at the table. They had no idea what was coming. They really didn't. And they enjoy course after course, having their glasses refilled over and over. This disgruntled, angry, and cynical company of men and women become joyful. And it becomes gradual. You notice physical changes in their appearance. Those who are estranged from each other began to make eye contact and talk with such humility. And they begin to listen to one another. Crippling, foggy sadness is lifted from their eyes of grief, and they begin to have joy. Those, again, who sit down as enemy leave the meal as friends. Reconciliation happens at this table. Downtrodden and pouty faces, they begin to like laugh with like a childlike giddiness to it. It's the oldest cynical man is laughing so hard at the end of the movie because these cold, cynical critics become children at the table by the grace of Babette. Because all of the sacrificial work that was going on behind the scenes that Babette created. Towards the end of the feast, a soldier stands up to give a toast, and this is what he says. Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and bliss shall kiss one another. There comes a time when your eyes are open, and we come to realize that mercy is infinite after they're getting coarse, after course, after course. It never stops. Mercy is infinite. We need only await it with confidence and receive it with gratitude. Mercy imposes no conditions. For mercy and truth have met together, and righteousness and bliss shall kiss one another. So as we ask daily bread from Jesus... Our bellies will be full, our hearts will be glad, and we will taste and we will see that the Lord is good and we will have fuel for this thing called the Christian life. The grace of his mercy in forgiving us, the grace of his mercy in feeding us. Daily bread, Chick-fil-A bread, the Kennedy bread, Cribs bread, burrito hub bread. Daily bread, daily grace, daily fuel, and also the daily bread for calming your anxiety about a big decision. The daily bread for giving you sleep tonight. The daily bread for giving you a soft heart towards friends who are getting on your nerves right now, and you just wish they would like get over this thing that they just will not get over. Daily bread. We have a long journey. We're not done with the semester. We're not done with this thing called discipleship. And the grace of forgiveness and the grace of daily bread, host that is Jesus, longs to give it to us. So when Annie is hungry, she lets us know. She cries and she screams and she kicks. If Annie knows anything right now, is that she needs food. Existentially, she feels it. Whether she knows it or not, she knows that. When my wife feeds my daughter, and when I give Annie a bottle in the afternoon, when I get done eating with y'all, 
having coffee with y'all. We're not just meeting her needs physically, making sure that she gets fed. Of course, that's part of it. We're saying to her as we feed her, we love you. We're saying we will protect you. We're saying you are not alone. We're saying you are ours. And you, we're saying you are home. When Jesus feeds you, he is saying, friends, you're my child. I'm with you. I'll never forsake you. And this mercy of forgiveness and this mercy of the Lord's Supper and this mercy of the gospel and the mercy of a spicy chicken salad sandwich, salad too, it's daily bread as well. He is saying with these gifts, friends, this mercy and this grace that he loves you. He won't leave you. I'm going to close reading a portion of a poem by Eugene Peterson. The world has worked up an appetite and comes on the run to the table that he has set. Strong meat, full-bodied wine. The world has worked up an appetite and has come on the run to the table he has set. Strong meat, full-bodied wine. Grace for the long haul, and it's good food. It's good fuel for us. Let me pray.